रहे I'd like to begin with um, a history, I think, of the, our understanding of what ego is, uh, perhaps its mythological place in our lives, and uh, how the psychological process of separate self occurs in the way I see it, the way I look at it. Kind of a historical overview, which begins really when I was a child. And the story of the Genesis and the fall from the Garden of Eden, the story of Adam and Eve, horrified me. As a child, the notion that that uh, humankind was cursed, thrown from the garden, that from there on in, we make our living by the sweat of our brow, and women deliver children through pain and suffering, and that we should always be separate from God, dis discharged from the garden, that really frightened me as a kid. And... Uh, I thought about it a lot. What does it mean? And over the years, I began to think of it as our mythology. Really, it's quite universal. The story of our beginnings. Of, uh, and that uh, perhaps it, there's a lot of metaphor in this. And a few years ago, it dawned on me that when Eve ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and brought upon the punishment, that eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is really symbolic of the arrival of thought. Once you have uh, distinguishing between opposites, this occurs in thinking, and that that act was uh, the myth of the arrival of thinking. And then with that becomes self-consciousness. Adam and Eve became very conscious of their bodies and covered themselves. Thought brings self-consciousness. And thinking itself is the vehicle of the ego self, the separate self. Chogrim Trungpa, a great Buddhist teacher and Tibetan Lama, who, who began the, the Naropa University, was back in 74, which was how I came into contact with Joseph and Jack, he used to say that uh, thinking is the ego's foot soldiers and that emotions are the ego's generals. 
that, that without that expression of thought and emotion, there is no ego. That's what it is. So when I started thinking about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil as the beginning of thought, it started to make sense to me that our mythology is that with the beginning of thought, we were thrown out of paradise, really. Something happened then that separated us from unity, from what's now called these days non-dual reality. We, we were cast out into a world in which there were divisions and opposites and strife and struggle and thought predominant. And from then on in, we had to work to become aware of who we are. There was, uh, in that mythological process, there was a loss of the knowledge of our true selves. We became mixed. Our consciousness became split into opposites. And truly, we live in a world of opposites. The Navajo call our world the land of shadows. Everything that arises here casts the shadow. We live in a world where everything is divided into me and you, us and them, black and white, up and down, yes and no, good and bad. We see the world through a lens of polarity. That's, that's normal for us. And I thought, well, that began. That's the myth of how that all began. And it also was the beginning of suffering. We were cast from the garden. And from that time in, on, our individual responsibility has been somehow to find our way back to the garden. And I see spiritual practices that journey, whether it's just metaphorical or what, it's still a return to an understanding of true nature, our, our absolutely our, who we actually are. Now that makes some sense because the Buddha taught after his awakening that we were all, all mankind asleep in a kind of coma coma of dissatisfaction and suffering, which was the result of not knowing who we truly are. And that what was needed was what he taught, which was the practice of going inward and examining closely our experience, and in that way discovering true, true self. What is it that's actually happening here? Who, who are we really? So, in addition to the mythology of it over the years, I've pondered a lot about why this sense of alienation and separation from the world. And I used to think of us as the, one of those guys in the television uh, ads for Gardal, toothpaste Gardal, where he, there's a plexiglass screen between us and the world. We can't ever quite be totally in contact with it. <clears throat> so 
So in, in the course of studying to be a physician and a psychiatrist and years and years of working with, with people in psychotherapy and body work, developing the work that out, uh, Catherine and I have really been in together for, for many years, I started to think of how the sense of separation arrives in infancy. And I, and I noticed that around in studying infants, my children and children of friends and babies in hospitals, I began to notice that around, uh, somewhere around a year old, uh, a movement in the mind begins to happen. Uh, a development of a, pro a point of view begins to occur in, in the baby's mind. And the point of view is one of, I'm inside here, in, inside the skin, in this body, I live in here, and you, whoever you are or whatever you are, is outside. That there's a big difference between me and them, the inside and the outside. That starts to form as a point of view more than anything, a, a, a movement of, of a, some processes in the mind, the Buddha described them, is the first with the sense of the presence of the body, the, the arising of feelings in the body, then the be happening uh, of perception, and then the arising of uh, all kinds of mental phenomena, thought, imagination, visualization in the mind, mostly thought, concepts. And then finally the arrival of consciousness to the bodily life, those processes occur naturally, but they're movements in the mind. And somehow around age one, it's, it's like these processes got together and said, hey, we, we're, we're, we're somebody here. We're a thing, we, we exist. And from that moment on, developed this idea of being a me back here. But it isn't an, a separate individual self-sustaining thing at all, which is what we always try to make it be. We like to think of it that way. It's a movement of process and coming and going and flowing of points of view. And the whole totality of it is that, well, I'm here. I live in this. You live in yours. And, and all, everybody else is in some kind of form, and there's a big gulf of separation. This, this split in consciousness, the fall from the garden of evil, uh, good in the, of Eden. So <clears throat> I realized over time that well, what I'm doing with working with people and with myself is I'm studying this gap in uh, conscious awareness, that somehow in there lies a lot of answers for us. It's in that separation which uh, between me and you and us and them, in that separation arises a sense of alienation, 
being different from others. And also what comes in there is the beginning of fear. Fear starts happening in that separation. And I call that, that separation the wound, the, the wound of being human. It's our condition, our, our human self-life. And um, in, out of the fear then becomes a longing for security. We, we look for security all the time, some kind of safety in, in a world in which there is none, really. And we begin to seek for love, security, some way to heal the, the gap, some way to solve the separation. We, we long for connection, membership, to feel one with everything. And isn't that really the motivation for spiritual practice, this longing to discover how it really is and to feel connected? wherein we don't really deeply feel connected because of the formation of this sense of separate self. The Buddha called that the development of wrong view. He actually used those words. It's wrong view. It's a misunderstanding of what human life is and that it's... Uh, really the cause of what he called our ignorance. We don't understand who we are because we are separate <coughs> from ourselves. The split is internal as well as external, external. It's inside as well as out. So in beginning to understand that was really helpful for me because I... I realize what I'm, what I'm trying to do in my life, in my spiritual practice, meditation, in my work, is discover what I was before the split happened. What is it that's going on back of all of this separate self business that causes so much suffering, really? It's, it is the suffering. So it... I started to be really appreciative and have a lot of gratitude towards spiritual practice because sitting down quietly and learning how to be attentive to the inner processes and outer behavior is really the way to discover what this gap is. And if we can know it more and more, then perhaps we can find a way that heals it, that separation. And that's really, I, I see that's what we're all about. Finding ourselves, and in that process, finding everybody else also, to discovering that, that actually the separation is not true. There is no separation. It's some kind of a optical delusion of consciousness. That's what Einstein called it, an optical delusion of consciousness. That uh, in order to, to find the, the way of healing it, one had to know it deeply, which means 
Know the ego in action. Know when it's dominant. Know what it feels like. How do we identify it? Recognize the, the, the arising of ego in thought itself, <clears throat> in the feelings in the body. Ways of becoming aware of ourselves as ego without getting lost in the process. Having some awareness of that it isn't, the ego self isn't the whole story. There is much more expansion under, before, around, above the sense of separate self. And that is what brings real happiness to us, that discovery of the freedom from conditioned mind. And the ego is definitely conditioned mind. It's always depend upon the, the past. We walk around dragging our pasts with us everywhere we go and everything we think and, and all of our impressions and our contacts with each other in the world are dependent upon what has come before. And that's the ego in operation is clinging to the past and fantasies of the future. And my hope for today is that we look at this in various ways, in meditation practices and talking, conversation, sharing. We look at this carefully and learn ways to know the ego self because in spiritual life it's very often uh, trashed. You know, the ego is a bad thing. It causes problems. We need to get rid of it, which of course is total delusion. I mean, how can you get rid of your your operating self? You know? One discovers rather than gets rid of anything. One discovers what's here rather than inventing something new or making something happen or building. I hope I'm being clear about this. I want to I'm talking this way so that we can kind of get on the same page to begin with about what a sense of separate self entails. And we're so close to it, you see, we identify so deeply with that that we very often aren't, we can't, we're unable to see it because we are so much it in our, our daily consciousness. So Catherine and I are here to suggest, well, let's step back a little bit from this whole scene and notice what we can notice about it while not totally captivated. How's that? Yeah? Pretty, that's it? Said it well. Good. Said it well. Does anybody have questions about that? <laughs> Questions in the moment. I don't know if I'm on or not. You have to press the button. I'm not on. I'm on now. Am I on now? Yeah, that yes, was I a am. whole big gob of information, I guess. The separation. There's a question. Yes. 
That's why we're here. Yeah. That's why we're here. That's what we're, we're going to be talking about. <coughs> Which means really like learning to love it and be friends with it. Someone said there's a question? Repeat, repeat the question. Her question, she said that she works with people and um, she would like to know some of the ways that she can help them manage having an ego, deal with having an ego. Being one. Being one. How can we best live in this mm -hmm. separate self situation? Where you, you can see, if you're just in touch with the news at all, that every, we're making a mess of it uh, in the world. I mean, it's warfare and killing and terror everywhere. And it all comes back to not understanding who we are, but believing in me and those other guys who are not like me and they should be killed, that kind of thing. That all comes from the sense of separation and not understanding what it is that's driving people to, to hate and hurt others, cruelty. Yeah. Did you, did you have a question? Yeah. Uh, this is probably the work of the day, and I'm probably putting it out too quickly, but... It, it seemed to me that, that um, the ego is the instigator of the separateness. And um, it, it seemed to me that the work is to transcend the ego and not have it be the operating mechanism. So the minute you said that, <laughs> I'm confused. What's the confusion? The confusion is that you said you don't get rid of it, you don't try to get rid of it, uh -huh. it, it um, is your operating mechanism. Yes, okay. It's, what I'm referring to is the possibility of not getting rid of it, recognizing its value and how it operates, but then not becoming totally dependent upon it as an interpretation of reality, that it's possible, possible to be simultaneously ego and beyond ego, that it's holding two worlds at the same time is really the demand. So it isn't that it disappears in practice, it's, it becomes more, it, it takes its proper place, you know, back in the back of the bus. Yeah. Huh. Okay? Uh, thank you. Yeah. Because for most of us, we're, we're way out of balance. I mean, we all know that we spend most of our time in thought, and we don't even know that we're thinking. So we're already two or three times removed from what's really happening. And, and, and so while the conditioned mind and the egoic mind is part of what, part of what, what we're doing here, and part of, uh, it's a very useful tool for living in this world. We, we can't live without it here, uh, the operator. Um, but it's, it's also about seeing, seeing it for what it is and that the ego is a fixed point of view and our attachment to our point of view is so strong that that's what we take to be reality. Which is limitation. Then limitation and awareness. Mm -hmm. All right.
Oh, there's questions. I've been uh, taught that it's always a paradox, that it's always in the middle. It's not one extreme or the other, that it's not self or no self. It's both and neither. It's a paradox. Yep. <laughs> Life is paradox. The whole notion of holding two opposites simultaneously as true is paradox. And yet, that is the demand on us in awakening. Because but, we don't we don't get rid of something and then move on to something else. And mostly in our thoughts, we are very singular. You know, our thoughts are very self-centered. I'm, I'm sure you've noticed that. And as we sit today, I'm sure you'll notice it some more. So it's, um, it, is it the self? You know, is the self running things? Do we want to be the no self? You know, ultimately, these are just words that kind of collapse. But in the in the uh, introducing this idea of inclusive thought, which is different from dualism, what Robert's talking about the split, the subject object split, and me, I'm my I'm me, me over here, and you're you over there, and my position is right. When we start to look at how much our minds are invested in our self-center thought, we then realize that we have created, our thinking is part of what creates and recreates this separation. So inclusive thought opens us up to the possibility, maybe, that other, other points of view might be just as relevant as our own. That what we call truth is only our interpretation of reality, and that somebody else's truth is just as valid. Oh, more questions? Yes? Hi. <laughs> I was with you at, in Naropa in 1976, and you inspired me to come out to California, so that's why I wanted to be here. She was with you in Naropa in 76. You, and you were? inspired her to come to California. Wow. <laughs> we were there then, huh? We were there. Yeah, yeah we were there. Uh, there was a now then happening. Yeah, right. right. <laughs> so anyway, my question is, um, maybe, I don't know if this is more in psychopathology, but how about when the ego turns against itself? Because what we're talking about is e me versus mm -hmm. you. What about it when it's me versus me? It, it pretty much always is turned against itself. The split is within the ego as well as between the inside and the outside. And uh, the, there's a war going on in all of us, really, of uh, the top dog, what Fritz Perls used to call the top dog and the underdog. You know, uh, you ought to stop eating so much, you're getting fat. Well, give me a break. I like to eat. <laughs> blah, 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 the, the inner dialogue is going on all the time. I wonder if you could talk more about how that forms. How it what? How that comes to be. Why do we split it? Why do we split that ego into, you know, Separate. eating versus dieting or whatever? You know, why do we keep doing that? Do you, you know, I don't know why. <laughs> uh, I don't think anyone does. It's uh, the nature of how it is. Mm -hmm. Is we, we live in a split consciousness. Mm. 
it's, it's earth, life on earth. That's how we are. And everybody in all the cultures? Uh, oh, everyone, yeah, every culture. It's universal. I've worked with many different people in different cultures, and it's always the same. The ego is split, uh, superior and inferior. Because uh, I remember hearing that the Dalai Lama, when he worked with some Western Westerners, said, you know, the famous thing, that how come Westerners are so full of self-hate, and yeah. he had never run into that before. He wept when he heard that. Yeah, yeah. Because uh, in his culture, it wasn't so much aversive, the split. They were more congenial with each other. Okay, yeah. okay. Our culture is very aversive. We, okay, we, we should get into what the ego does and how it is. And yes, that. I wanted to just respond to your comment. This is something I wanted to talk about later, but I recently heard an interview on NPR, maybe some of you heard it, it wasn't that long ago, uh, a neuroscientist named um, David uh, Eagleman ha has a book called Incognito, mm -hmm. uh, the, secret, the Secret Lives, plural, of the Subconscious Mind or Subconscious Brain, I can't remember which it is. Uh, it was interesting that the, in, the, in the subtitle he says lives, not life. And one of the things he talked about as our, he calls it, when you look under the hood, there are all these competing voices, competing systems. He said it's like, it's like a very noisy parliament where there's arguing going on. Oh boy. Yeah. And he says, you know how you're angry at yourself and then you try to cajole, cajole yourself and then you bribe yourself and then you reassure yourself and that this whole you know, conflict is happening internally. And it's all about you. And it's all about you. And he actually said these words. He said, there is no one in charge. And I thought, wow, this is a neuroscientist speaking. There's no one in charge. He said, we have one output channel. And it's kind of a question of, who, you know, who prevails in the argument. No one in charge. So Which, that's this, Buddhism. That's Buddhism. That speaks to the emptiness of self and all these things that we're going to be addressing later. But I find it so fascinating that science and neuroscience is kind of, quote, catching up with Buddhism. Uh, yeah. So uh, there's just a battle going on in there. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Did you? Go ahead. Yes. I started reading that book, and I was wondering, and I wonder if you wondered or if you know, if uh, I wonder if he is he familiar with uh, Buddhism? Because when you read that book, you think, huh? Yeah. <laughs> I wonder. I I don't know because I haven't read the book, but I uh -huh. I plan to. I just heard him, uh, you know, on the on the radio, and um, he didn't have any sort. Didn't appear to me in his interview. He didn't have any like. Strains coming through. Of, no, you know. no, he didn't. Yeah, yeah. he seemed pure like a real science. scientist. Yeah, yes. pure science. Yeah, yeah. unadulterated. <laughs> so, um, I wanted to uh, talk a little bit about economics, which is not economics but egonomics. And uh, I, I first heard Catherine say that in Todos Santos, egonomics. The commerce of the self. Wow, that's perfect. So I don't know if any of you were uh, intrigued by the title, um, "What Is Economics?" 
And um, here's uh, how it's kind of come together for me is, is that, you know, we're pretty much always practicing economics in the sense that the self, the limited self, the divided mind, we're always looking out for number one here. You know, we're always looking out for how does this benefit me? How does this reflect upon me? Uh, am I as good as that person? Uh, what is that, you know, how do I measure up to the other person? And then all the subject, all the questions inside your own mind of how you could be better. And then how the uh, people in your life could be better, better to you and how that relates to you. And then how your life experience could be better and how that relates to you. And all this is what I come to call the commerce of the self. So we spend a lot of time in the marketplace of the me, as you've noticed, um, if you really pay attention to your thoughts, not only in sitting, but in walking around and in relating to others. And that's what the practice is. It's not just sitting. It's how you are in your relationships, how you are in situations, in traffic, (laughs) in conflict. Um, with your loved one. So this kind of preoccupation with the me and the tendency to believe our thoughts to be who we are and to interpret reality only through our fixed point of view. This is the egoic mind, or aka economics. So most of the time we are operating in a state of busyness. I don't have to tell you. Busy in there. Busy in there. Busy out there. Real busy in here. Blah, right? blah, 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 blah. Always going on. Chatter, 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 chatter. We can't stop the chatter, but we can step back from it. We can't stop our thinking, but we can disidentify with the thought or see the inherent emptiness of the thought. When we're truly controlled by our minds, I like to call this the opinionator, kind of akin to the terminator. You know, the opinionator has all these ideas about you and about other people, especially has very strong opinions about the people closest to you. You you know, you know how you believe your opinions about those people, right? So this, the the opinionator is always at work. And this kind of running commentary is, tends to be a big part of what runs our life and runs our thought process. Excuse me. Do a running commentator of the opinionator. Oh, the opinionator. Yeah. Okay. Let's see. um, The opinionator. All right. I'm hungry. I wonder what the food will be. No, I don't like this food. It, it's, it's not the kind of food I really like to eat. Hmm, that person over there, they made the food. I, you know, I wonder if they're putting too much salt in the food. Um, let's see. Um, mm, my husband just came in the kitchen and he just like closed all the doors that I had left slightly ajar. Hmm, what does that say about him? What does that say about what he thinks about me? Uh, uh, and on and on. And on and on, you know, on and on. Opinionator loves to go to work on your loved ones. I'm sure you've noticed that. So, um, so you know, the opinionator is that killer, killing you and, and killing the love in your life and limiting your experience. Um, 
So we have business, which is what we're mostly engaged in, out there, inside. And then we have isness. So I, I like to think of meditation as being open for isness. Here we are, we're open for isness. And the longer we sit and the deeper we go into practice, hopefully we are open for isness in our lives. So that what comes to us, what life serves up to us, is, is just part of the is. And we can have our opinions about it. But we begin to see that that's what they are. We begin to see them as phantoms. Um, the, the, the idea that uh, we can control what life serves up to us. I, I think if you looked at your life with any deep with any degree of reflection, you've seen that we can't control what life serves up to us. And the, the equanimity practice, or the isness, is about non-resistance, non-judgment, <coughs> non-attachment. <coughs> so, in the process of becoming aware of our thoughts, we see how we are so attached to certain outcomes. And we work with those. We, in the process of becoming uh, an is-ist, <laughs> is-ist? Isism. Isism. That's right. That's, that's it, you like that? Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, we have enough isms? Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so when we, when we be, you know, when we study our thoughts, this is this is akin to your question. It's like we're not trying to get rid of our thoughts, because I don't know anyone that's been able to do that. We're just merely creating some space so that we can observe them, and not take them to be who we are. Um, and they move on their own. You know, life just keeps moving right on its own if we let it go. Um, but the opinionator, while it's always working overtime, never lets anything go. <coughs> always weighing, always measuring, how does this reflect on me? What does this say? Mm, they didn't look at me. Oh, they, you know, this person ignored me. Whatever it is, my work isn't good enough. Always critical. Always critical. Always critical. So when we're in isness, <clears throat> we are opening to what life serves up to us. And the opinionator can go on with the lips flapping, you know. The lips are always moving. But we are in the flow of life, you know. Like, how do we become still? By moving with the river. Life is flowing every moment. And are we, you know, are we back there somewhere or are we moving with the flow? Now, I've noticed when I look at my mind that there are a couple of strong tendencies, and maybe you'll recognize these in yours, in the practice of egonomics. Uh, I notice that my mind has a very strong preference for the past and future. Very strong preference for the past and future. It also has a tendency to proliferate thought. So the per per proliferation of thought is like one thought leads to the next. You know, It's like a train. I don't have to tell you about the train. And you might start out at Spirit Rock and you might end up, you know, in, uh, in New York City. 
right? And it's also, I notice the persistence of the personality. There it is again, the me. What I like, what I want, this hurts, I'm uncomfortable. She did that, he said this, you know. So these are the, the uh, sort of like the three Ps. <laughs> and um, what, what can we do about that? We can bring the power of presence, the power of our awareness, to understand and observe those things, not trying to get rid of them, not struggling with them, not making them an enemy, but shining the light of our awareness upon them. So the, the, uh, this marketplace of the me, to, to extend this metaphor a little bit, is you know, we know from observing the stock market that the stock market can be sluggish, it can be robust, it can be a bull market, it can be a bear market. You know, it, we can have a recession, we can have inflation, we can have depression. All of these things apply to ourselves. And we also learned when the market crashed that the market is actually a virtual reality, right? People were trading on things that the commodities deal. It was virtual. So when, when the markets crashed, it was like, for me, it was another example of Oh, here we we're here. We have impermanence at work, you know. Here we have another demonstration that basically all forms are unstable, but we are fascinated by these forms, just as we are fascinated by the by our thoughts. So one of the things we're going to do today is look at that. How do our thoughts seduce us, and what is our fascination, and how can we kind of turn down the, you know, the constant drone of the opinionator so that we can hear the whisper of silence. And instead of watching that, you know, that, that ticker tape that goes by, like how the market's doing, we're going to, you know, there's something else. Yeah, I want to say something about the ticker tape. That ticker tape, right here. ticker tape of the me. Yeah. All the while you've been talking and all the while we've been sitting here, for everyone in the room, your heart has been beating. Mm -hmm. You don't even have to think about it. The lungs have been inflating and deflating and with breath. You don't have to think about it. Your thyroids have been secreting. Your adrenal glands have been secreting. Bowels have been twisting and digesting your breakfast. You know, pituitary is doing its boss job. All of that is happening without having to do for you to do anything. The same is true of thinking. Exactly the same. Mm -hmm. That just flows on and on and on and on. And just like your heart beats without you, thought happens without you in that w same way. That the, the, we don't create thought. We don't own it. We don't have the ability to stop it. What the ego does is cling to it. It clings to thought and, and it imagines that it's about me. And it does seem to be. Thought seems to be very personal. But it's totally a, a made-up delusional thing. It's just a constant ticker tape going on all the time. So in, in our work, 
it, I think it's helpful to remember that when you identify thinking, to also realize, oh, that's happening. That's just thinking happening. And you don't have to believe it. it just it, often, if you look at thought, it's irrelevant to anything that's happening. It's just weird stuff going through your mind. <laughs> and sometimes totally out of the box. Other times it's about this moment, or it's the past or the future, but it's not thought that's existing in now. When, not, when now happens, it's, it uh, disappears in the mix. So the, the main thing is that if you're sitting here or you're alive and thinking is happening, it, it isn't you doing it. <laughs> now that's, that's a big one. Because we are so attached and identified to thought that you have to kind of remember that at first when you start working in this way. No, it isn't me. That isn't me. That's not me at all. It's just thought. It's like, a, it's kind of like moving into a, a rented room or something. You know, the furniture is just in there. It's not necessarily that you picked it out. You know, but that's where you happen to be. So if you, but you don't identify with, oh, that's my couch, or that's my chair, or that's the something, something that my grandmother gave me, or that's the something that I fought with over my ex-husband so I could keep it, you know? It's the, uh, it doesn't belong to us. And so much of our pain and struggle comes from believing that we are responsible for our thoughts. Just try to control your thoughts. I mean, who's, who's, who has any luck with that without striving? And, and we cling to thoughts as a way of finding some relief from our suffering, some way of uh, finding unity again or mm -hmm. security, and it's totally useless because thought does not provide any kind of solution. It just leads to more thought. <laughs> I have a nicer room. <laughs> we do a lot of that, don't we? <laughs> Redecorate. Yeah. But you still have the same room. Yeah. Uh -huh. A question, and I've heard two ways of um, distinguishing thoughts from feelings. And I'm, oh, thank you. So Thanks I'm just wondering that. about your opinion on. One way is that, that I've heard is that feelings are just the body's expression of thought. And so if thoughts and feelings are basically the same thing. The other way I've heard it is, no, feelings are the true self. And so when you're trying to get some distance from your thoughts, really you should pay attention to your feelings. So I, I wonder what you guys think about those two distinguishing. Well, in... in the years of learning what we don't know, actually, <laughs> learning that the pay atten paying attention to the body experience is helpful in diverting attention from the clinging to thoughts. However, it isn't true self. Uh, it's, uh, it's on the way. And that being aware of body helps us identify when we're in the contraction of of ego self. 
because it is a contraction that can be felt. Am I answering the question? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So feelings are important, of course, and they're there. We study them, but they're not it either. And are they like the ticker tape? We didn't. We're not responsible for for our feelings either. Right. Right. Wow, great. That's great. You're not responsible. <laughs> Guess what? It's not. Yeah. Really? Um, the, thing of, the thing about working with, with, uh, with feelings, and I, I take it that you, you know, work with other people, so, yeah. you know, it's important. I mean, these are, you can't really generalize because as a therapist, you know that you, you need to meet your client where they are, and it's a long road, right? Is that on? Is this on now? Yeah. Okay. As a therapist, you know that it's important to meet your client where they are, and this is a path of discovery. Uh, and it's a path of gradual awakening. But often we, we kind of can worship the emotions as if they are sort of the be-all and end-all. And at the, the kind of uh, attunement that I think Robert and I are talking about is dropping the storyline out of the emotion. So it becomes just body sensation. Like, if you're angry, there are reasons why you feel angry. And there might be plenty of past evidence to support why you might be feeling angry, right? So at a certain point, you go into the anger, you go into the anger, and you experience it, and it's, the storyline is important in terms of understanding, right? And then gradually, the storyline will drop away so that you experience the emotion purely as body sensation without the overlay of interpretation or story, so that the narrative becomes open rather than the narrative keeps on repeating. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. That's helpful. Okay. Yes? Is that narrative, would you equate that with like distorted thinking? And then um, I'm just sitting here listening to all this and thinking about in cognitive behavioral type stuff, yeah. how we have distort, you know, how they say we have distorted thinking and mm-hmm. that, and that, but yet you're saying thought is not, you know, we are not our thoughts, but yet we are. Exactly. And, and do we, mod- yeah. you know, modifying distorted thinking would be helpful. And, I don't know, your comments on <laughs> distorted thinking. Well, again, just as I was saying before, it, it all depends on the person, you know, we're, what we're talking about kind of is, is moving to a state that has, we're relatively boundaryless. You know, when we go into no thought and into just pure sensing. But as all of us who are therapists know, people need healthy boundaries. They need to know what their experience is. They need to be in touch with themselves. So, you know, it's, it's hard to make a, just a, general, a generalization uh, about it. Um, so let me see if I can be helpful. Can you ask me the specific question? I guess just where would you put the idea of distorted thinking from a psychology perspective in context with everything that we're talking about? Bec- yeah. you know? Well, given that maybe all thinking is a distortion, right? <laughs> Within that context, right? All thinking is an interpretation of reality. Right. It's our interpretation. However, we do know from working with really s- disturbed and sick people that they are out of touch with reality. So we need to help them experience reality. So in this case, if someone has a highly distorted, you know, 
view, I think it's important you have to like bring them back into their body and try to help them really feel themselves and be grounded and you know, know what's actually going on. Distorted thinking is actually key to neurosis. Neurosis is really repetitive circular thought yeah. about something that happened maybe years and years ago or it's designed to prevent the, uh, the feelings that are engendered in that, something that happened a long time ago by going, look over here, you can think this way, and it's around and around and around, it's very distorted. But it's normal neurosis. But then we're all normally neurotic because look, we, we're all, this is what we're talking about. We're talking about the egoic self, the conditioned mind, and how it repeats itself over and over again. In fact, this, Even, is, this is ego talking about ego. Yes, exactly. Um, you know, so, uh, anyway, I lost my, I lost my I, training. I get it, didn't I? Yeah. Whatever. It's okay. Yes? Hi. Hi. Uh, if the... If the thoughts are going on without us, just like the body is going on without us in its systems, there must be an evolutionary reason for it. I mean, what, what good are they? Why are they there? <laughs> uh, what is the nature of reality? Nature. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> well, it's the, you know, I mean, it's the gift of life. We're, this is the gift from the, the, it's a gift to be alive, wouldn't you say? Definitely. Yeah. That's, to me, that's why it's going on. Maybe we're, uh, Robert has a great phrase in one of his poems. He calls it, uh, we are divine strands of amusement. I mean. That is a good line. I love that line. <laughs> like, you know, here we are. We're uh, sh shape-shifting. Shape-shifting in our various forms. We start out as these little creatures. And then we grow and grow. And then we return. Um, of what? Amusement. <laughs> right. So, so this idea about um, being neurotic, you know, neurotic is, as we said, you, we repeat the same things over and over again. And, uh, you know, it just seems to be going on without us. So I like to talk of, a, of this, we're going from being neurotic to being neuronic, which the neuros are always moving. They're always fresh, Right. And um, the, when we think about energy, is, 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 we think about energy as, as atoms, or uh, is it a particle, is it a wave, you know. It depends how you ask the question. But um, if we are truly open to life in the moment, it's very neuronic. It's all about seeing and sensing and hearing and feeling and, and touching. It's very, very alive, but we're sleepwalking through it because we prefer to hang out with the neurosis. It's like looking to repeat itself over and over, but it's familiar, and we know how to do it, so that's why it's comfortable. Hmm. Yes? So I have a question about um, tools, techniques, and talking about um, something like cognitive behavioral therapy or teaching breathing exercises or you know physical relaxation so those would all be tools heuristics that 
I would use with the client at appropriate times. Yeah. And we're working towards getting to a state that you're talking about, but there are yes. uh, kind of stops on the way or things you can, you know, useful exactly. tools. Exactly. Yeah. But those are things that we, that I do all the time. Yeah. Right. Just to clarify that. Thank you. Yes, exactly. Let's do a little sit. Just a postscript. I think the, the core of the Buddha's teachings is uh, don't cling mm -hmm. to anything. Clinging is the source of all difficulties. Mm -hmm. The ego's job is to cling to opinions and judgments and fundamentally to the thought of I. That's its job. So it clings to thought. There's nothing wrong with thought in itself. It's the clinging and the attachment that creates a struggle. That, that's a distinction that's good to make. Thought's so, totally normal. However, the, the ego makes it reality. And it also says it's who you are. Mm -hmm. okay. So we're going to do a, a sit and while we're sitting, if you can maybe play with these ideas that, um, that these thoughts are, are not yours. They're just like happenings that are coming across the screen. And um, you don't have to necessarily believe them. You don't have to identify with them. And you don't have to react to them. It's just the opinionator at work. Do you need a, a little break before that? Yeah. Uh, a short break, okay? And then we'll come back for a sit.